All right. Well, you guys better hang on. Look out. Uh, so we've been uh, I kicked off a series just before the new year going through this uh, kind of idea, what would you ask Jesus? Uh, and we're trying to answer the common barriers to faith that people have. And the, the reason why this work is significant and important is because in this past uh, decade, more and more Christians are walking away from the faith. And uh, due to research and uh, polls and gathering this data, we're actually able to find out why they believe they're walking away from the faith. We're able to see what their questions and criticisms and doubts are, and it's worth addressing those things. Where if I uh, was teaching in, you know, 20 years through the Bible verse by verse, it might take me some time to address some of these very pertinent questions that they have, these doubts that they have. And so that's why sometimes doing a topical study uh, by just picking a theme and addressing it head on, we're able to see uh, what the scriptures would say uh, across the board on one point and then be able to like hear and reason with the Lord, so to speak, uh, upon the answers that he has for our tough questions. Now, uh, today's question is going to be a little bit weirder uh, I guess for asking Jesus hypothetically in this scenario, but the question is why aren't there non-biblical sources to verify who Jesus was, right? And that'd be a weird question to ask Jesus because maybe you don't even believe there was a historical and, and historic Jesus. I think that's right. All right, all right. The history, social studies, English teachers nodding. All right, so uh, yeah, like it'd be weird to like why would I ask a make-believe character a question, uh, would perhaps be the thing that uh, you'd, you'd be struggling with. But the reason why this is a question that we need to consider is because uh, 19% of 13 to 18-year-olds who eventually right, leave the church or classify for themselves what barriers to the faith that they have, 19% of them say that they don't believe in fairy tales. All right, They don't believe in fairy tales. They believe that the Bible is just some made-up book, or it's a book that's entirely parables that were uh, non-historic, that were just compiled together to teach a moral to the story, uh, and that even the morals that they might argue that the Bible is there to teach are no longer relevant to our culture today. Uh, that they would argue, right, that like this is just some made-up story, and that even if Jesus was an actual person that lived and breathed and walked, well, they probably, like his followers after the fact, hundreds of years later, made up this idea of him performing miracles. Or they made up the idea of him uh, claiming to be God, that this deity of Jesus was an after-the-fact addition, and that he was probably just some rabbi, some teacher uh, in Judea and Galilee in the first century, right? And so, so these are the criticisms that they have. And so as a result, they say, right, I don't believe in fairy tales, all right? And so one of the first questions, I'm going to try to nitpick and hit a few of these today. We'll see how I do. But one of the first questions is why trust the Bible, right? Why trust the Bible? Why is this something that I should believe? And this is one of the reasons why doing a sermon like this is significant, because if I only ever teach from the Bible, which I believe is true, which I believe is a, a valid and worthy place to find the answers to life's most significant questions, but if I only do that and never give a basis for why it's true, then they're just like, well, 
why should I believe it? Like, I, I know a whole bunch of stuff that it says, I just don't know if it's a credible source. And so this is the struggle that some people have. And, and on that basis, some people are going to be like, hey, like it's, you know, it's a self-referential book, it's circular reasoning, uh, you know, it, it, it just validates its own claims, and that's, how can I believe that? And I think part of that question is, comes from a misunderstanding about the Bible in general. Uh, the Bible is not a singular book, even though you could hold a physical Bible in your hand, it's a library of books. It's 66 books written by over 40 authors over 1,400 years. And so when the claims of one letter or one book or one uh, historical reference, right, is validating the claims of another part of the Bible, it's not circular reasoning, it's not cyclical, it's not self-affirming in the way that you would have if it had a singular author. Okay? And so it's worth noting that. Like that part of that misunderstanding is like, well, I've got this one book and it says that it's the Word of God. But that's not actually the way that the Bible is physically structured. And today I'm going to try, in an odd way, uh, to use the Bible less. I'm actually going to give us a lot of sources that are extra-biblical, non-canonical. I'm going to give us a lot of sources from uh, people who were first-generation Christians uh, and things that they wrote about the Bible. And I'm going to have us take a look at historical claims, writings and texts by people who were non-Christians, who were Jewish or who were pagan or who even had a hostility towards Christianity and Jesus and the Bible. But as a result, uh, by looking at these things, which I don't think that they are necessarily always trustworthy sources, nor should you believe the same way they believed, but by looking at these sources, the less I use the Bible, the more reliable the Bible is going to become to us in today's sermon. Because we'll see that it is corroborating evidence. We'll see that there are multiple sources that agree with portions of what the scriptures say, and then it will gain credibility for us, right? It, it'll let us know like, okay, that the claims of the scriptures are something that I can have confidence and believe in. All right, here's, here's a, a quick claim, just a quick thing that I'll, I'll answer here. So claim, you can't trust the Bible because it was written by humans is a common phrase that people will say. Uh, so that's the claim that people make. And Christians, even early Christians, agreed that the Bible was written by humans. They did have the belief, and I have the belief, that it is not merely written by man, but it is, in fact, also inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by God. And that's also the way that Jesus believed about the Old Testament. That's also the way that Paul quoted and believed about the Old Testament when they were quoting from it. But as far as the claim you can't believe something because it's written by humans, well, this very claim is one that's proclaimed by humans. And so it's actually somewhat of a self-refuting argument, right? Do we ignore any book or any claim or any quote? Or are like all human claims inherently false? Like we, we can't do that. That doesn't make sense. So instead of having this sort of objection, we should ask instead of, you know, who wrote it or, you know, what are their motives, we should ask, is it true? Is, are the claims that it makes true? Is it reliable? Can it be trusted? And so as a result, we can see and assess these claims and determine whether or not they're corroborated by historic events or other authors that are outside of the scriptures. 
And so one of the things we're going to look at today is try to figure out, okay, can I trust what the Bible says? Here's another question that's often asked, a claim that's made. The Bible we have today was changed significantly compared to what was originally written, right? That it's like that childhood game of telephone, and the version that we have now has been so distorted, so mutated from the original author's intent that I can't believe it. Like, even if I wanted to believe the original Bible, the one we have isn't it. And so I'll just kind of pick and choose and be like, well, the part that isn't true conveniently is the part that I wish wasn't true or allows me to, you know, live the life that I'd rather live, and I'll just pretend that that part was the thing that was added to the Bible, right? That over time, humans have possibly added to the Scriptures and that it's a means to control the masses and manipulate populations to just be, you know, more obedient and, and go along with the claims of authority, all right? And so this is one of the criticisms that people make, and it's a matter of uh, transcription errors that are added over time is one of the things that they're worried about, right? Which is a legitimate concern, right? Is the thing that we hold in our hands accurate? Is it representative of what was originally written? Okay, and that, that's a valid concern. And so uh, J. Warner Wallace uh, has an, analyzed the text and looked at what he calls a chain of custody, all right, in which he's looked at some of the original authors of Scripture, all right, uh, in this case, uh, he's got Mark and Paul and John, and he's looked at the writings of some of their students, all right, the people that studied under them, and then the writings of those students and the writings of those students. And as a result, when you look at the writings of these extra-biblical authors, you're able to try to figure out, like, was the original message written by John the same kind of message that was written by his student, written by his student, written by his student? And if there's consistency across the board, it gives you confidence that you still have that original message, the same life of Jesus that is being described. All right, so here, uh, here's a quote for you. Two of the greatest textual scholars who ever lived, Brooke Foss Westcott and Fenton John Anthony Hort, had this to say concerning the amount of variation in the New Testament manuscripts, and they said this. If comparative trivialities, such as change in order or the insertion or omission of an article with proper names and the like, are set aside that the words of the Scriptures, the words in our opinion, still subject to doubt, uh, can hardly amount to more than a one-thousandth part of the whole New Testament. All right, that when you look at the pieces of Scripture that uh, you can identify may have been added after the fact or may have been lost after the fact or a slight change in a name that was uh, added after the fact, you can actually identify that none of those things would bring into question any major doctrine of Christianity. None of them would change the way we perceive Jesus. None of them would change our perception of the claims of the New Testament. All right, that when you look at all of those claims, right, and, and then the things that are in question, the things that they bring to question are insignificant, all right, as far as the authenticity of the Scriptures. And when it comes to ancient texts in the Bible, we actually have more, more quantitatively, uh, a numerically, number of texts than any other historical sources at that time. And so when you, when you consider the historicity of other ancient figures, ancient nations, battles that take place, 
even things like the Iliad, uh, the number of copies that we have from ancient times are so scarce, and yet we believe them to be true. But when we compare that to the authenticity of Scripture, we have so many and numerous quantity of multiple copies of books of the New Testament that we can actually see and be like, have a degree of confidence that we know what was said was the same thing that was said originally. Uh, one of the things to consider is that uh, with the geographic radiation of the story of Jesus and the geographic spread of these New Testament documents over thousands of miles, that you can see little changes that happened over time. But if this one region had that change and the other four regions didn't, you can identify likely when that change occurred. All right, and vice versa, when you look at all of these different sources of mild, modest changes, when you compare all of the documents and the regions that they come from, you can identify when and where those changes would have taken place. And none of those changes are of significant concern. They're, they're usually just something like a bit of a gloss that was added over, or maybe some scribe was adding some uh, oral tradition that they've heard uh, inserting it into the story, or they added some local knowledge that they had about the region that Jesus was ministering in. They're like, oh, let me just write down this little fact that there's also this there. Right? And, and so just like when scientists try to analyze uh, mutations over time within a species that are isolated from one another in different regions, and you can actually then kind of back network and figure out what was the original DNA code, that's the same thing that we can do with scriptures and have confidence with what the original scriptures had said. All right? So, all right, uh, some people claim that the story of Jesus had changed over time. And so J. Warner Wallace, I've got a couple of his books here. I've got some of the books uh, that he's written for kids available in the back if you want those. They're really cool. I definitely recommend you check them out. If you're interested in a physical copy, I'll buy you one. If you're interested in an audiobook of one of those, I'll also buy you that. I'd love for you to listen to his stuff so you can uh, verify this on your own as he himself, who was once an atheist at 35 years old, and a cold case detective used his detective skills, his textual critical analysis to try to figure out were the gospel accounts eyewitness testimony of the life of Jesus. All right, and so this is one of the things he did when he looked at uh, just three of these church fathers, uh, Clement, uh, Ignatius, and Polycarp are the three that he looked at. He was able to identify that they described the same Jesus that you and I believe in, the same Jesus that's described in the scriptures. And these are a summary of the things that they identified about Jesus. One, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. A star announced his birth. He was baptized by John the Baptist, taught and had a ministry on earth that he was humble, unassuming, and sinless. He spoke the words of God and taught the Sermon on the Mount. Ointment had been poured on Jesus' head. He was unjustly treated and condemned by men. He was whipped, suffered, and was crucified. All of this took place under the government of Pontius Pilate and Herod the Tetrarch when Her Herod the Tetrarch was king. Jesus died on the cross. He was resurrected. He had a physical resurrection body. He appeared to Peter and the others after the resurrection. He encouraged the disciples to touch his wounds, and he ate food in front of them. The disciples were convinced by the resurrection appearances and were fearless after seeing the risen Christ. Jesus returned to God the Father. 
He is our only master and the Son of God. These are the claims and things that they wrote about in their own writings. He said that all things are subject to Jesus and all creation belongs to him. They describe Jesus as the door, the bread of life, and the eternal word. Jesus is our Savior, Lord, and God, and faith in Christ. Christ's work on the cross is the thing that saves us, and this salvation and forgiveness are gifts of grace from God, and they believe that Jesus will judge the living and the dead. And so when you look at these first-generation Christians, right after the time when the New Testament was written, they describe the same Jesus that you and I see in the New Testament texts, all right? There wasn't like some significantly different version. And when you look at the later versions, later notes and writings of those church fathers, it's the same Jesus throughout. Jesus is equally divine early on as he was later on. He's equally miraculous in his ministry in the later writings and in the early writings as he is in the New Testament. So it no longer stands as a legitimate claim that Jesus had never claimed to be God or that his disciples pretended that he was God much after the fact as he entered into some sort of legend status over time or that Jesus never performed miracles and that Christians just added that they sprinkled it in to the text as flavor to make the story more interesting or to make Jesus' claims more believable. All of this is evidence that it's the same Jesus that you and I believe in when we read the scriptures as is verified by additional Christian authors in the first century and later. And these authors, uh, Clement was in Rome and he affirmed seven books of the New Testament. Uh, Ignatius was in Antioch and in his writing he affirmed seven to 16 New Testament books. Uh, In Smyrna, Polycarp living in 110 AD affirmed 14 to 16 New Testament books. And so we can see that as we look at the geography, as we look at the sources they had, we could actually identify, even if every Bible was somehow deleted from human history, if every Bible was somehow erased or just deteriorated in our hands, we would still know the same Jesus. We would be able to piece together the quotes that they used from the scriptures and have a great and solid understanding of who Christ is and what he came to do and have confidence in every Christian doctrine that you and I have today, that if every Bible was gone, miraculously, that we would still have confidence of what was originally written on the basis of these documents. And so the deity of Jesus was not some late addition. We can have confidence that early Christians believed these things, and it was not some fictitious story. So... Uh, Let's see. I'm going to skip that. All right. Here we go. Here we go. All right. Gospel according to non-Christians. So what's going to be fun? I'm so excited about this. Oh, you've got, all right, Everett, you've got one question today. What's your question? (laughs) Uh, You can go find mom if you want. I get it. We're hitting a lot of history today. So, all right, that's fine. If you want to go find mom, you can. (laughs) At the Christmas Eve gathering, he actually had a really good theological question, but he really set me up there. Wow. (laughs) Uh, Does anyone else want to go to do the Sunday school lesson instead of this? No? All right. Thank you. All right. So so many claim that the Bible is self-referential and validates its own legitimacy. Uh, And today we're going to look at 
non-Christian, sometimes hostile sources and things that in their writings they unintentionally validate. They unintentionally corroborate the claims of the Bible, all right? They unintentionally, like, in just, like, trying to explain it away, they end up agreeing with portions of what they say, agree with what the disciples had written in the Scriptures. And so today we're actually going to look at the gospel according to non-Christians, where using only their words, we will be able to believe in the same Jesus that you and I already believe in. All right, and so I, I'm comparing this to like when Jesus rode in uh, to Jerusalem on a donkey, and when uh, they're like, Jesus, you've got to silence your disciples because they're worshiping you. They're saying, Son of God, Hosanna in the highest. And he's like, hey, out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have perfected praise. Or if these were silent, the very rocks would cry out. So instead of listening to babies or rocks today, we're going to listen to the mouths of people who hated Christians and Jesus in many of these cases. And so here we go. The first historian we're going to look at is Thallus from 52 AD. And while we do not have Thallus's original writings, Thallus is quoted in the works of Julius Africanus around 221 AD, and Julius himself is not a Christian. Uh, but what Julius Africanus is attempting to do in this moment is to explain away the darkness that had occurred doing, during Jesus' crucifixion uh, at the sixth hour. And so he quotes this. He says, On the whole world there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This darkness Thallus, in the third book of his history, calls, as, <coughs> as appears to me without reason, an eclipse of the sun. And so, just in this like little snippet of history, we are able to gather the facts that, and I didn't have the full quote for space, that Jesus was one who lived, Jesus was one who was crucified, that there was an earthquake and darkness at the point of his crucifixion. All right? Uh, Tacitus, from 56 to 120 AD, is an individual who was a trusted ancient historian, uh, was a senator under Emperor Vespian, and was a proconsul in Asia. In his Annals of History in 116 AD, he describes Emperor Nero's response uh, to this fire in Rome. So here we go. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of the, our pure, uh, pr procurators, Pontius Pilate, and the most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, in the, uh, the, the first source of this evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. And so, in this writing, we are able to determine that Jesus was one who lived in the region of Judea, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and that his, his followers were those who were also persecuted for their faith in Christ, okay? Uh, next person, we've got Mara Bar Serapion. Let's, I don't know if I'm pronouncing these right. 70 AD. Here we go. So here's a Syrian philosopher who is writing a letter to encourage his son about some difficulty that he's having, and he compares Jesus to other wise philosophers of the time. All right, and so this is what he says. What benefit did the Athenians obtain by putting Socrates to death? Famine and plague came upon them as judgment for their crime. 
or people of Samos for burning Pythagoras, Pythagorean theorem, right? Uh, in one moment, their country was covered with sand, or the Jews by murdering their wise king. After that, their kingdom was abolished. God rightly avenged these men. The wise king lived on in the teachings he enacted. And so we see that there's this historical view of an actual existing Jesus, one who was wise and influential, who died for his beliefs, that somehow the Jewish leaders were responsible for his death, and that his followers adopted the teachings of this Jesus and lived their lives accordingly. All right, here we go. Uh, Phlegon from 80 to 140 AD, uh, in the similar manner to Thallus, is mentioned and quoted by Julius Africanus as well. And not only Julius Africanus quotes from Phlegon, but so does Origen, one of the church fathers that we'd mentioned earlier. And so here we go. Uh, Julius's uh, account says, Phlegon records that in the time of Tiberius Caesar, a, at full moon, there was a full eclipse of the sun on the sixth to the ninth hour. All right, Phlegon's mentioned by Origen in this way. He says, now Phlegon, in the 13th or 14th book, I think, of his chronicles, not only ascribes to Jesus a knowledge of future events, but also testified that the result corresponded to his predictions. All right, and so he's identified, outside sources were identifying something in the work of Jesus' ministry. And then the next quote, and with regard to the eclipse in the time of Tiberius Caesar, in whose reign Jesus appears to have been crucified, and the great earthquakes uh, which then took place. Uh, next quote, Jesus, while alive, was no assistance to himself, but that he arose after death and exhibited the marks of his punishment and showed how his hands had been pierced by nails. And so from these accounts of Phlegon, we can see that Jesus had the ability to accurately predict the future, that he was crucified under the reign of Tiberius Caesar, and that he demonstrated his wounds after he was resurrected. Now, not only do these early historians talk about the life of Jesus, but they also talk about the life of early Christians and the things that those early Christians had believed. And that's the case with Pliny the Younger uh, from 61 to 113 AD. Uh, this is right, described in a non-Christian history uh, when he writes a letter to the Roman Emperor Trajan. And so this is what he says, describing Christians. All right, they, the Christians, were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ, as to God, as to a God, and bound themselves by solemn oath not to any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up, after which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind." And so his descriptions of the early believers was that they very early on believed that Jesus was God and worshipped him as such. They recognized that uh, Christians held to a high moral standard and code and that these early followers of Jesus met regularly to worship Jesus. I also thought it was interesting that it said that they you know, ate a food that was ordinary and innocent of kind, right? They're not feasting and drinking and practicing drunkenness is what they're describing. But what's encouraging to me when I read about uh, these early Christians is that you and I share in this heritage with them. 
We share in this worship of the same Jesus that they worship, that you and I can see that they held to the same teachings and moral standards that Jesus taught. And when we worship God with a, a life lived before him, right, we're doing exactly the same thing. Right? That as, as Hebrews says, that, there, that we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses that we should run this race right, that's set before us. And so just as there's the biblical witnesses that we can see, we also have this legacy that we have this heritage that we can look back upon in which we can celebrate the risen Christ alongside our Christian brothers and sisters. All right, Seutonius, 69 to 140 A.D., was a Roman historian and wrote this about uh, the Christians. So because the Jews at Rome caused constant disturbances at the instigation of Christus, which is Christ, he, Claudius, expelled them from the city Rome. All right, and so he's identifying similar to Paul's life and experience in the book of Acts that oftentimes there were these riots that would come up about the life of Jesus between the Christians and the Jews, uh, and as a result, the this, uh, this leader decided to expel them from the city to avoid further, further problems. And he also talks about Nero. He says, Nero inflicted punishment on Christians, a sect given to a new and mischievous religious belief. And so he acknowledges the existence of these early Christians. All right, they weren't some fictitious characters. Right? That this wasn't just some made-up story. These, these riots that Paul experienced were authentic and actually happened. Okay, that this wasn't just some made-up thing, it wasn't a late-coming uh, description of Christ or the early church, that, that we have evidence that this is what they believed and this is who they were, that they were willing to die even for their faith. Lucian of Samosota, uh, Samosata, I'll say, 115 to 208, uh, 200 AD, spoke sa sarcastically of Christ and Christians, but in the process, he did affirm that they were real people and never referred to them as fictional characters. So here's uh, his sarcastic comedy about Christians. He says, the Christians, you know, worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. You see, these misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they are immortal for all time which explains their contempt of death and voluntary self-devotion which are so common among them. And then it was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they are all brothers from the moment they are converted and deny the gods of Greece and worship this crucified sage and live after his laws. All this take, they take quite on, the fa on faith with the result that they despise all worldly goods alike, regarding them merely as common property. And so from this sarcastic quote about Christians criticizing them and their Christ, their sage that was crucified, we see that Jesus taught about repentance. He taught about the family of God, that these teachings were quickly adopted by followers of Jesus and exhibited to the world around them. So here we go. We've got Celsus, 175 AD. Celsus was quite antagonistic to the claims of the gospel but in his criticism, unknowingly affirmed and reinforced biblical authors, okay? He alludes to 80 different biblical quotes confirming their early appearance in human history, right? And so if he never was criticizing the Christians, right, we wouldn't have had this additional evidence for us to be confident that these were early writings of the church. He admits the miracles of Jesus were generally believed 
in the early second century. He says this, Jesus had come from a village in Judea and was the son of a poor Jewess who gained her living by the work of her own hands. His mother had been turned out of the doors by her husband, who was a carpenter by trade, on being convicted of adultery. And there's even this backstory about the soldier named Panthera, uh, which is actually, uh, he adopted that story from Jewish account uh, as a way to try to debunk this virgin birth. Uh, being thus driven away by her husband and wandering about in disgrace, she gave birth to Jesus, <clears throat> a bastard, uh, Jesus, on account of his poverty, was hired out to go to Egypt. While there, he acquired certain magical powers which Egyptians pride themselves in uh, on possessing. He returned home highly elated at possessing these powers and on the strength of them gave himself out to be a god. And so he admits that there was at least the report and claim of a virgin birth uh, and he also identifies that uh, Jesus had an earthly father who was a carpenter, that he possessed some sort of powers, right? So he acknowledged that like people were seeing this Jesus do some unusual things, and he believed that Jesus claimed to be God, which is also somehow a common criticism that people have today. Like, no, Jesus never, never claimed to be God, but we can also prove that from within the biblical text, but not today. Uh, there's also this classic historian a Jewish historian who wrote after the fall of Jerusalem, uh, who is taken captive by the Romans. This name, his name is Flavius uh, Josephus, uh, and he wrote about Jesus. And now here's, uh, this is actually less than the quotes that we actually have, as some have had criticism as to whether or not Christians may have, after the fact, added anything to these written accounts, but this is uh, the contemporary view, this is the modest claims of non-Christians as to what Josephus actually said. And so it's this, now around this time lived Jesus, a wise man, for he was a worker of amazing deeds and a teacher of the people who gladly accept the truth. He won over both many Jews and many Greeks. Pilate, when he heard him, accused by the leading men among us, condemned him to the cross, but those who had first loved him did not cease doing so. To this day, the tribe of Christians named after him has not disappeared. And so from his writings, we're actually able to determine that Jesus lived in Palestine. He was a wise man and teacher. He performed many amazing deeds. He was accused by the Jews. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And he has followers called Christians who were still present in his day shortly after 70 AD, the fall of Rome. When you look at uh, the Jewish Talmud, which is a collection of writings of their rabbis, uh, which these writings we have exist between 400 and 700 AD, uh, but they go back to oral traditions or site sources that were much closer to the time of Christ. They are critical of Christians and Christianity and try to debunk the Christ that we believe in. This is one of the things they say, is that Jesus practiced magic and led people astray. Uh, the next quote is a longer one, but it just points out the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was one of the ways he was referred to, and he did actually exist. The next quote says that our rabbis have taught that Jesus had five disciples, so that's unusual, that's a discrepancy, but Jesus had disciples, and then it goes through some of their names, and then actually identifies the fact that the rabbis had concluded that those disciples should be killed, all right? And so uh, this is one of the things that they concluded. Uh, it was taught that on the day before Passover, 
Jesus was Hank. All right, like, and the Bible, even I think it's Galatian, uses that terminology that cursed is anyone who's hanged on a tree, uh, sort of thing like that. That, that, that. that Jesus was hanged the day before Passover, and a herald went out before him 40 days, proclaiming he will be stoned because he practiced magic and enticed Israel to go astray. Right, so that there was this, this identification that there was this Jesus who was put to death because he was blaspheming in his teaching, right? Uh, that he was performing some sort of miraculous deeds, but it said this, but nothing was found in his favor, and they hanged him on the day before the Passover. And so we see all of this non-Christian, non-biblical evidence agreeing with, corroborating the same claims of the early church, corroborating the same claims as the scriptures. I'm going to skip this whole other medieval version of the Jewish account that goes back to the first century as well, uh, but it identifies anyways, I guess I'll summarize, uh, that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, he healed the lame, that he said that Isaiah the prophet foretold of his life, he was worshipped as God, arrested by the Jews, beaten with rods, given vinegar to drink, wore a crown of thorns, rode into Jerusalem, on a donkey, uh, was betrayed by a man named Judah Iscarioto, so like Judas Iscariot, okay, and had followers who claimed he was resurrected and ascended, and what's really interesting is they, in their own debunking story, believed that the tomb was empty, that there was no body found in the tomb. And so when someone critical of the claims of Christianity agrees with the claim of Christianity that the empty tomb was a thing, now that limits the types of explanations that we would have when critiquing the story of the Gospels, right? That if the enemy and the, right, if two opposing factions agree on a common fact, you could at least say, well, it's likely at least that fact is true. And so it appears as though the tomb of Jesus was in fact empty. And so this is the Jesus that you and I worship. A variety of hostile ancient testimony related to Jesus point to the same Jesus that you and I worship. If you could put up that picture on the screen, uh, which is one of these amusing little doodles that I don't know if J. Warner Wallace draws himself, but nonetheless, I don't know if you can find it, Wes, if it's opening up, uh, that it's got a variety of, oh, it was the one before that, but that's fine too. Uh, a variety of hostile sources, historical accounts, and texts point to the same Jesus that you and I believe in, all right? And so it wasn't some late addition. It wasn't something that was made up after the fact that you and I can have confidence that the Bible that we read and believe in is true. And so this is one of the things that J. Warner Wallace points to is the second picture there. Uh, he argues for the cumulative case for Christ, okay? That you don't merely just look at a single line of evidence to determine whether or not someone's guilty or innocent. You look at the, all of the evidence together, and when multiple independent sources agree on a common theme, then the likelihood of that claim being false becomes probabilistically smaller and smaller and smaller. And so when, when you look at all of the evidence pointing to Jesus, this is what he summarizes. He says that the Gospels were written early. And he's got a variety of reasons to support that. He says the Gospels have been corroborated by the early church fathers and non-historical or non-biblical historical sources. Also, the scriptures uh, co-corroborate one another unintentionally at times, where one gospel account would say one fact 
and it leaves you with a question about a region or why a particular statement was made. And then other gospels unintentionally verify like eyewitness testimony does, giving you further clarity on what's taking place. We also have that the early writings, the, the writings of the, the gospels as well as Acts are saturated with historical locations and details that someone only present would have known. That uh, it also includes language and terminology that were local to the region, that names uh, and positions of those in government authority are used by Luke and verify, right, that they were of the time period that we seem to have. We also have that the Gospels have been accurately delivered to us when we consider the chain of custody of the early church fathers and that much of the Gospels can be confirmed by them, right? That there's a vast number of ancient copies that you can com do comparative analysis to remove any possible discrepancies and recognize that the Bible is 99.9% .9 the scriptures that were originally written and that the Gospels uh, that the earliest caretakers of the text not only preserved these documents but had a perception of them that they were on par with Scripture itself in the Old Testament and were worthy of keeping for future generations. We also have that the authors of the Gospels, he argues, are unbiased. When he as a detective would evaluate any witness, he had to determine whether or not that person was trying to manipulate a jury into believing a particular story. And the way he came to this conclusion was that these authors were convinced on the basis of observation Right, that they themselves doubted and did not believe. They themselves had their own questions and were unsure that James, the brother of Jesus, did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah until after the resurrection, right? That they were unbiased in their initial assessment of the data. That the three motives that often drive bias are financial gain, sexual lust, and the pursuit of power. And that all of the writers of scriptures did not benefit from any of those gains in their lifetime. In fact, they suffered penalty and persecution and death. And as far as the idea of some sort of conspiracy theory where they collaborated together and was like, we'll make up this story about the divine Jesus, they, the, the difficulty in having a conspiracy theory increases with the greater number of players that have to be sharing the same lie, and it's even more difficult if there's not immediate communication between them. And so they died thousands of miles apart at different times without the confidence of like looking at their friends and being like, we're going through with this, right? No, they died alone. They didn't have their friends to fall back on. They held true to the claims that they made even when suffering death. And the Bible includes, what's interesting, is embarrassing testimony about its own authors. Right, like if you're making up a story, why would you include the fact that you denied Jesus? Why would you include some of your greatest failures in public record if it's a made up story? Right, why would you include maybe even sayings of Jesus that would have been inconvenient with maybe present day theological debates. Like, why not pretend as though Jesus said it's slightly different to be more convenient for your present argument? And so, in conclusion, we believe in the same Jesus as early Christians. We have the same Bible as early Christians eventually all had copies of and agreed upon, right? Uh, that we worship the same Christ as, right, and, and, and he's the risen Jesus as Jesus himself predicted and as the prophecies in the Old Testament verified, right? And uh, tell you what, I've 
reading all of this non-biblical stuff, which is not the words of truth and life, let's get at least one passage in here, right, so we can worship. Uh, tell you what, we'll hit 2 Peter 1, Wes, if you could help me out. 2 Peter 1, verse 16. So this is Peter's testimony. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven and we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in the dark in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. And so Peter and John and Paul all talk about their own experience, uh, Peter and John specifically about their eyewitness experience, the fact that they touched and ate with Jesus, that they had seen Jesus, that they were witnesses of these things, and they deliver this news to, to you and I who get to read their very same words. And yes, it would be great, right, if we got to see and, and touch and experience the same evidence that they did, but they point out that nonetheless, you and I can fellowship with them, that even though we are not eyewitnesses, that we can fellowship with them, and more importantly, with Jesus himself through the words that have been handed down, that you and I can trust and follow and believe. And what's even more interesting is, yes, we've got all of this historical evidence to fall back on, but if you, as an individual, seek and ask and knock, you can experience the same Jesus that the Bible proclaims. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, Lord, for your goodness and your working, that, Lord, in your sovereignty, you've preserved your word through the ages, that we can know who you are, that we can experience you, that we can know your heart and your love for humanity, that we can know the means to which we can be saved, that we can trust and follow you. I thank you that even interestingly enough, through the words of your critics, you've been able to preserve the gospel as a message that we can have confidence and trust in it, that we need not doubt, that we have, in fact, a reason for the hope that is in us, that you are the risen Christ, you are the Savior, the Messiah, that you came not just to die for the early church, but you came to die and save and redeem us as individuals, and that we can still experience that hope we can still experience your goodness. We can still walk in your love to this day. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.